excited to welcome you to Thought Leaders in Law and Business, presented by law firm Hodgson Russ, in partnership with the Business Journals. In this mini-series, John Tebow, publisher of Buffalo Business First, sits down with Hodgson Russ attorneys to get their take on some of the nation's hottest issues and how they affect our communities. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Carney, partner and general counsel at Hodgson Russ, to discuss the Supreme Court and some of the processing procedures that are taking place each and every day. A bit about Kevin's background and credentials before we jump into our discussion. In addition to serving as the firm's general counsel, Kevin's practice focuses on federal court litigation. He has defended clients in securities and antitrust class actions and litigated a wide variety of corporate governance disputes. He also devotes a substantial portion of his practice to advising other lawyers on professional responsibility and malpractice issues and on state and federal appellate issues. Kevin clerked for Judge James L. Oaks of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and for Associate Justice Harry A. Blackman of the U.S. Supreme Court during the October 1988 term. After his federal clerkships, Kevin served as confidential advisor to Judge Howard M. Holtzman of the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal at The Hague, which dealt with a variety of public and private international issues. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Glad you could be here. Well, thanks very much, John. Thanks for that introduction. All of that occurred a long time ago. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, the Supreme Court is one of those institutions that uh, people keep an eye on, and there's lots of writing about it. But uh, I'm going to try to draw on my experience there as a law clerk, as well as you know some observations in years past. And I thought what we would talk about, because I think it is one of the things that's not evident to folks, is... How is it that the court, you know, goes about deciding what issues it's going to deal with? Why don't we start with that as, as topic number one? You know, we see it every day that a case is about to go in front of the Supreme Court. How does the Supreme Court decide what issues it will decide or hear? Well, and I think the starting point, as is so often the case, is with the U.S. Constitution. And Article Three of the Constitution, which governs um, the judiciary in the United States, makes it clear that the Supreme Court, or frankly, any other federal court, can't act unless there's a case or controversy. So, for example, right at the founding of the country, you know, George Washington reached out to the Supreme Court asking for an opinion on what some treaties meant. And the response from the court was, gee, that's very interesting, but we really can't help because Hmm. we don't have the power to do that. We only have the power to issue opinions in connection with a specific dispute or case. In contrast, I mean, Congress can legislate about anything they want, but the Supreme Court has a much narrower focus. The other thing that has to be present in a case is appropriate standing so that for a case to proceed in state or federal court, you know, there must be a party that's been aggrieved. And those doctrines are extremely complicated. Frankly, you know, standing issues tend to ebb and flow based on sometimes what the court wants to accomplish. But standing is another, you know, uh, primary requirement. And without it, you know, the court can't issue a decision. Cases come to the court from both state courts, state Supreme Courts, and federal courts of appeals. You know, our country's got 51 separate judicial structures. And the court's jurisdiction, with very limited exceptions, is appellate jurisdiction. The only cases that it will hear as an initial matter are now cases basically between states. 
because there is an original jurisdiction uh, of the Supreme Court in Article 3, that original jurisdiction has been narrowed by legislation. So now that there generally are two or three cases a year where a state has a dispute with another state. Sometimes that's over boundaries. Very often, I mean, when I was there 35 years ago, the most significant cases were, frankly, over water and water rights. That may be something that's going to continue in the future. I was going to say is we have uh, 20% of the the world's fresh water in our backyard here in Western New York. I would absolutely think that that is something that's going to be popping up and states figuring out how they can get a big straw over here. So that will be interesting. I totally agree with you. That certainly may be the case, although I'm, you know, as compared to the issues that are faced in the West, we've got it pretty good here. So that's really a summary of what the court is allowed to decide. But I think what's more significant is, mm-hmm. you know, how do they go about deciding cases, deciding. getting cases between them and deciding what to decide, essentially. So the court for many years had a mandatory appellate jurisdiction. There was various laws that said any appeals shall be to the Supreme Court. That jurisdiction has been severely narrowed. In fact, it was 1988 legislation was passed that has really narrowed the court's appellate jurisdiction. Prior to that, the court might have four or 500 appeals that they had to hear every year. Hmm. Now, very often those were dealt with in very summary fashion. There wouldn't be argument. There may not be full briefing. But again, in 1988, Congress narrowed that mandatory jurisdiction. And so that now the court's really sole jurisdiction is through what's known as a writ of certiorari. Now, that's a Latin term that means basically to be informed of so that a party in a case below who has lost, who's been aggrieved, can bring a petition for certiorari, essentially asking the court to take this issue up. Now, when I was clerking, there were probably about 10,000 writs of certiorari filed a year, roughly divided between cases where the parties could afford to pay for the petition, and then what are known as informa pauperis uh, petitions, which are largely from prisoners, sometimes, you know, 1983 claimants, that sort of thing. Now, the currently, it's about between 7,000 and 8,000 petitions filed a year. To put it in perspective, now the court hears argument in about 60 cases a year. So that okay. gives, gives you a pretty good idea as to how few of those petitions get granted. So the procedure is, you know, that the party files a petition for certiorari. That petition has to identify either one or multiple specific questions that they want the court to decide. And the petition is not designed to be an argument on the merits, although they obviously will factor into it somewhat. But it's basically the petition should spell out why the case is worthy of the court's time, why it's significant. If a petition is going to be successful, it also really ought to make the point that the issue that is the subject was properly presented below and that there was a full record on the issue below. So that petition gets filed. The opposing party has the opportunity to to file an opposition spelling out, gee, why cert shouldn't be granted. For example, this is just a matter of the court applying well-settled law below. There's no reason for the Supreme Court to revisit this issue. Or it might be that 
This is a brand new issue and the lower courts ought to spend some time dealing with it before it goes to the Supreme Court. There can be all kinds of reasons why a writ of cert would be opposed, which is not to say that sometimes, you know, there are folks who want to get the issue up in front of the Supreme Court. And so, you know, then in those instances, the opposition would not be particularly robust. So you've got a huge group, and I know you had talked a little bit earlier about a, a cert pool in part of the process and procedure. How does that work in terms of dividing up the responsibility amongst the different clerks on the court? Sure. In the cert pool, not a physical body of water, <laughs> but a, basically what it means is that justices pool their law clerks, and the law clerks are, let's say when I was there, there were six chambers that were in the cert pool. So that meant there were 24 law clerks and all of the cert petitions that came in in a particular week would get distributed and divided up among those 24. And a particular law clerk would write memos, let's say on the four or five petitions that he or she was responsible for. Those memos would go to the uh, all six of those justices. So now in different chambers, it was the practice in the Blackman chambers that in addition to drafting those pool memos, someone in our chambers reviewed every other memo and every other petition and, and gave our own you know views to the justice. So in writing those pool memos, you'd have the petition, you'd have the opposition, there might be a reply. In any case involving a federal statute or a federal constitutional issue, generally the Solicitor General's office would submit a brief. There also would be amicus briefs on the issue of certiorari. In other words, there might be other organizations, other individuals who might want to make arguments to the court that might not be directly relevant in the particular case or that might not have been dealt with by the parties but where they would want to persuade the court one way or the other, you know, as to whether cert ought to be granted. The question that a little bit off here, I mean, clearly the justices are the ones that are behind this, but the process you're describing would suggest that the clerk is also remarkably influential. Is that something that you've experienced in terms of clerks really helping shape the process going forward? Uh, I'm really curious about that insider view that you might have there. Yeah, I, certainly there's been no shortage of debate over the years about <laughs> the, the role of law clerks. On one level, the fact that law clerks are uniformly folks who are just generally a year out of law school. I mean, the typical path for a law clerk mm. is a clerkship out of law school for a judge in the Court of Appeals or maybe a state Supreme Court, and then to be hired by a Supreme Court justice. Often, frankly, while the individual would still be in school, a lot of the justices hire maybe a year and a half ahead of time. And so you have folks who are, he said modestly, pretty smart, <laughs> who are pretty committed and, and you're there for a year. It's pretty unusual. There are some clerks who wind up being there for more than a year. For example, in OT88, when I clerked, Justice Kennedy was a relatively new justice. He'd only been on the court for three or four months. There were a number of clerks who had the previous year worked for other justices who went to work for Justice Kennedy for that year. But for the most part, folks are there for a year. And it's a very, you know, it's an intense environment. There's an awful lot of work. Um, but certainly it's a fair criticism to say, gee, wouldn't the court be better served by you know, more experienced lawyers looking at some of these issues. 
But I think that when I was clerking, there were three justices who were not in the cert pool. And so at least at that point, there were, you know, sort of four independent views on any okay. cert petition. And now the practice, I believe, at least as reported, is that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito are not in the cert pool mm. and the rest of the justices are. You know, it's a balance because the volume is so much, it would be very difficult for every chambers to do a real thorough analysis, you know, of every petition. Right. But I think that we can talk a little bit about how the process works because- yeah. That was going to be my next question. I'm sorry for pulling you off a little bit off no, no. Uh, track there, but you know, clearly, once we get that done, what standards do the justices apply when they're deciding whether they're going to grant cert? Right. And let me just jump in. You know, so pool memos get circulated, and the justices mm-hmm. look at it. The, the there's what's called a discussion list, in that any justice can put any cert petition on that discussion list. Got it. If a petition doesn't make that list then it's history. You know, it's going to be automatically denied. What that discussion list means is that even if one justice thinks that it's cert-worthy, or at least worthy of discussion, that alerts all the other justices to take a harder look at that petition. So they're, they're going to, when they go into conference to discuss the petitions that have piled up, they're going to be aware that, yeah, this is something that Justice so-and-so wants to talk about. Even if it didn't get the same level of scrutiny at the outset, they're going to take a hard look at it at conference. And the justices conference, you know, they meet, except for the summer, they meet on a regular basis, either every week or every couple of weeks. The cert petitions don't stop during the summer. So when the court goes back into session, and that's the first Monday in October, there'll be, you know, really a marathon conference before that to address all the cert petitions that have piled up over the summer. And so you'll see that first, you know, order or the first orders that come out in October, you know, there'll be an awful lot of grants. In that conference, you know, only the justices are present and the criteria that gets applied, I mean, the court has a rule governing the uh, review on certiorari. And what the rule spells out, it's rule 10, talks about, well, is there a conflict between the decision, you know, that's presented on this petition and other decisions of the Court of Appeals, uh, Courts of Appeals, or state Supreme Courts. And that's part of the job of the Supreme Court is to resolve those conflicts. I remember when I was working, Justice White really took that very seriously. You know, and there might be a case that presented a conflict, but other justices didn't think was really worthy. White would almost always dissent on the basis oh. that, gee, this is a conflict. We have, we've got to resolve it. The court can also accept a petition where there's been an egregiously wrong decision below. I mean, the court does have supervisory powers. That's very, very unusual. And can you give me an example of something that may have happened recently? To tell you the truth, I can't because okay. you know there <laughs> so are rare. Yeah, no, it's true, and 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 that's in, in part because you know things would rarely get to you know the Supreme Court without it having gone through either a state. Uh, Supreme Court or a federal court of appeals. Um, So, but it's important for folks to recognize that, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't view its role as correcting error. I mean, the fact that a court below got it wrong is interesting, 
but it's not going to be a basis for the court to take a question. What the court's going to be doing is, you know, again, resolving conflicts and to deal with important federal questions. And to quote the rule, important question that has not been but should be settled by this court, or if it conflicts with a, a previous Supreme Court decision. Now, I think in recent years, there have certainly been grants of cert that don't fit any of those uh, standards. Those are the articulated standards. And yeah. Lots of folks can debate about, you know, the standards that particular justices are applying with respect to particular questions. But in conference, it takes four votes to grant mm-hmm. cert. So, so not a majority. Exactly. Exactly. And there are, you know, there are different orders that can come out. For example, and there's different ways of voting. So, for example, a justice might vote with something called, uh, I'll join three, J3, which would be, well, I don't think this is strong enough for me to vote, but if three other people think it's important enough, I'll go along. Okay. Uh, sometimes out of conference, they will call for the views of the Solicitor General. If the Solicitor General hasn't weighed in yet, they, you know, they may delay deciding cert to hear what, you know, what the government has to say about a particular issue. In a vote granting cert, it doesn't show, you know, how uh, justice is voted. So in other words, if a court grants cert, there's not an order saying justice so-and-so and so-and-so voted in favor. But when the court denies cert, there very often will be a dissenting opinion. And those dissenting opinions, you know, are signed. And okay. so it's an interesting thing. And, and the denials of cert, I think they were extremely rare back when I was clerking, with the exception of death penalty cases, because Brennan and Marshall always dissented from a denial of cert in a death penalty case. You know, as I said before, Justice White would dissent where there was a conflict, but it was pretty unusual for there to be a dissent from a denial. It happens a lot more these days, again, for reasons that people can debate. So last question for you, Kevin, as we get into this, I think many of us have heard of the term before, but don't know what it is. Can you explain to us what a shadow docket is? Sure. For its entire history, the court has always had the ability to enter, you know, extraordinary orders. Again, while I was clerking, and for most of the court's history, very often the orders were in death penalty cases. So there would be a request from uh, someone who was facing an execution for the court to enter a stay of that execution. And that requires five votes, although it can be made to an individual justice. Each justice is responsible for, you know, one of the judicial circuits. And so an application can be made to an individual justice. That justice can, you know, rule on it. But then it's almost always referred to the full court uh, for a decision. And those emergency cases or those emergency situations, generally there's not full briefing. You might just have the decision of the court of appeals or whatever court it's coming from and a very limited petition um, seeking the stay. But in recent years, the court had, and this is the reason why I think it's gained attention, that the court has you know, taken action, again, without full briefing or whatever, that has had some real significant impact. For example, you know, in a number of instances, voting maps and districts were struck down by either state Supreme Courts or a federal court. The court has stayed those decisions and allowed elections to go forward under maps that had been held unconstitutional. 
They've struck down a number of pandemic measures sort of in the same way. And there are some environmental cases where they have stayed a decision of a lower court. And basically, the standard that the court always operated under was irreparable harm. In other words, not hard to see the irreparable harm in a death penalty case. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it seems as though a number of members of the court have kind of set that aside and, you know, issued stays that can only be seen as, you know, trying to influence the outcome and signaling to people, you know, how a case is likely to come out because it does require five votes for a stay. Yep. Kevin, wrap-up question for you here. Anything that you can see uh, coming up on the Supreme Court docket at the remainder of the year that looks interesting to you that you're keeping an eye out for? I think that the recent redistricting case that came out was hopeful. I think at this point, I'll be honest with you, I don't spend a huge amount of time, you know, more than anybody else in terms of keeping an eye on what the court's up to. I mean, I think it is a little troubling that for most of its existence, the court felt fairly constrained by doctrines that didn't have anything to do with the merits, whether it's stare decisis, standing doctrines or whatever. It seems as though the court is, or at least a majority of the court, obviously, and we saw that in the Dobbs decision and others, that the importance of stare decisis uh, seems to be greatly diminished, which again, I think is, you know, that combined with just some of the recent appointments to the court and how clearly political it has become has led to, I think, you know, among other things, sort of a decline in the court's reputation, which is unfortunate. Kevin Carney, partner, general counsel at Hodgson Russ, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Thought Leaders with Hodgson Russ. Thanks for downloading Thought Leaders in Law and Business. Listen to new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, visit bizjournals.com Hodgson Russ Thought Leaders. This podcast does not provide legal advice.